Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I'm really excited to have with me Siobhan Crochet. Siobhan is the sports dietitian for the Australian Paralympic team. Uh, she has been with the team since prior to 2012, so over 10 years now. And she specifically works mostly with wheelchair rugby. And so we're going to talk mostly about wheelchair rugby. So welcome to the program, Siobhan. Thanks, Liz, and thanks for having me on. I'm very excited to be chatting to you today. Yeah, it's great to have you. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got into working with Parasport? Yeah, sure. So as you know, I did my fellowship at the Australian Institute of Sport back in 2010 and 11. And in our second year of the, the fellowship, we were allowed to choose a sport or a program that we were able to work with one of the senior dietitians on and, and learn a bit about. So I chose Parasport which meant that I got to work with you, which was a great a great stepping stone and a really good opportunity to learn, I guess, from the best in the business, but also, you know, get exposure to a range of para-sport. I myself grew up with a brother uh, who had muscular dystrophy, and so I had an interest in, I guess, disabilities and, and that area already, and then working as a sports dietitian, mm-hmm. I got involved. Yeah. And what was that first experience with with Parasport like for you? Uh, it was good. It was, I guess it was a little bit overwhelming in that I went to a wheelchair rugby camp as my first camp and you were there with me. And I remember watching them train and just seeing how physical it was and just just the actual game of, of wheelchair rugby for the first time to see it sort of live and hear the, the chairs crashing was, mm. um, yeah, it was a little bit, uh, interesting and, and very enjoyable. But I certainly fell in love with the sport straight away. I mean, I like, I love sport. I'm a sports mads person and I quite liked, you know, the strategy behind the sport. And I also remember, I guess the overwhelming part was, and, and I got a little bit nervous when I had to do those initial consultations with athletes and, mm-hmm. and sort of knowing what was the right thing to ask and what wasn't. And that's where I was so lucky to have you there to guide me and, and to tell me what was okay and what wasn't. And, you know, just to give me the confidence to, to do those consultations. Yeah, because well, I want to talk to you about that in a, in a little while, just in terms of what you think is okay and, and how do you start working with an athlete on the parasite. But firstly, I guess, what were some of those nutrition things that you were a little surprised about or you found raised your interest when you first started working with wheelchair rugby? Yeah, I guess, you know, the thing that is I still find fascinating is that no two athletes are really the same. You know, even mm-hmm. if they have the same level of lesion or they play the same position or they've got the same classification, um, there's still so many differences between the athletes. And, you know, I guess you get that in able-bodied sports too in terms of sort of a range of, say, energy intakes and things like that across maybe similar positions on a field. But uh, it's just a little bit more magnified in para-sport, I think, certainly that energy expenditure and, and sort of the complications around how to work that out. Um, I guess yeah. the other, you know, there's some other big-ticket items would be, you know, gut function and, and how comfortable they are with eating and, and when. And um, mm-hmm. the the big difference, I guess, that I hadn't come across was that their ability to or the inability to to deal with heat 
and you know even at sort of fairly mild temperatures you see them really struggling on the sideline um, being very hot and putting cold towels on themselves and things and I think I remember that distinctly you know from early on that that was that was going to be a major thing that we had to tackle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so let's walk through them one by one. So how about we start with the calculating energy needs or working out energy requirements. How do you go about doing that now? Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I've got a little bit more confidence as time has gone by, rightly or wrongly. And the way I would attack it is is usually to just work with their current intake, to be honest. So um, mm-hmm. if they're in a position where they've been weight stable, they have been playing rugby for a while, I think it can change a little bit if they're new to the sport or they've only recently had their injury. But if we're working with someone that is maybe new onto the Australian team that has been playing maybe lower level rugby for a number of years, the first thing I would do is to take a detailed you know, dietary intake from them um, and really get a good understanding of that just to see what ballpark composition you know often I will work from their current diet and and change from there but I'll also sort of double check with perhaps a couple of prediction equations just to see that I'm in the ballpark and I think I've I've learned a little bit as I've gone along you know maybe a 0.5 where they might sit compared to a maybe a three a three point player and then from there I guess I'd, I'd really just look at how that's going um, and check in with them quite frequently it's not as easy in Paralympic sport and, and particularly, you know, where I'm not always based at the same place as the athletes to sort of track body composition uh, as easily as you would. Mm-hmm. Even just getting a body weight is not always a simple thing. So I think, um, yeah. you know, we, we have done sort of skinfold measures over a period of time with our squad. We don't get access really to a DEXA. So what I tend to do is, you know, talk to them about how they're feeling. They notice small changes, particularly given the size of their playing chair and maybe whether they're, how they're fitting into that. And, and I talk a lot to their S&C trainer and, and maybe how how the changes in diet are affecting, you know, their performance. Yeah, okay. And so I wanted to go back a little bit. Uh, you, you mentioned a 0.5 versus a 3.5. So for those who aren't familiar with wheelchair rugby, uh, the 0.5, you're dealing with a fairly high level, more complete-ish spinal cord injury, correct? And then a 3.5 mm-hmm. tends to be more someone who's a an amputee or for other reasons has, is missing limbs, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, we um we often have actually in our team our three point five players aren't spinal cord injury athletes at all, but we do have some three point players who are spinal cord injury athletes. So even the difference between those players and then a point five mm-hmm. or a, a one pointer uh, is quite significant in terms of the energy intake they would need, and and even. Sometimes you get the unexpected, you know, we, we might have a couple of one-pointers who eat quite a significant amount more than a 0.5 player uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. So I guess knowing their level of lesion is very helpful, but it certainly doesn't give you the answer um, straight away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, perfect. Yeah. And so if you did have a DEXA, how would you how would you use that data differently to perhaps the way you currently do it working from their current diet and then building on that 
Yeah, I guess um, the the benefit would be getting their lean body mass so that we could, you know, more effectively use the equations to to help us, I guess, form an opinion on where their energy expenditure might might be. And certainly if you had access to DEXs uh, semi-regularly, you could certainly track the changes um, that are occurring. Mm-hmm. And are most of the questions they the ask other, um, or the, the, sorry, the, are most of the questions they ask around uh, losing body fat or gaining muscle mass or do you get a mix of both and and how do you find their they respond to the changes that you make to their diet in terms of the effectiveness of change in body composition? Probably we've had a team who recently um, now we've had a bit of turnover, but um, probably in my first eight years, they were a fairly consistent group who had all over time built up a considerable amount of muscle mass, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so we had a couple of people who wanted to change body composition, but more in the weight loss area. And they were the ones I worked, I guess, more closely with. Having said that, we've got a couple of people mm-hmm. and I think, um, you know, I'm, it's fairly new into the cycle and I've been slightly busy with the winter games as well, but um, at a camp while I was away. And I think there are a few athletes now who are going to be working on trying to build a bit of muscle mass because they mm-hmm. are newer to the program um, and just haven't yeah. had that training background. So I think overall, I've certainly worked in the, the weight loss area more. And in terms mm-hmm. of how they respond, I think... You know, in an able-bodied person, you can make some suggested changes and I think that it is in some ways quite um, a bit easier for them to sometimes Mm -hmm. get results. I think in these guys, because their energy expenditure is just so much smaller, you know, you really do have to get them to buy into the nutrient-dense foods because you need them to get their energy intake or, you know, their required micronutrient intake uh, at the same time as as reducing their overall energy intake and and that's already in a fairly um, tight range. So I think uh, yeah. it can be a little bit tricky and, and sometimes I'm in a, a bit of a situation where I think, you know, I've really got to make sure that they're meeting, you know, particularly their calcium needs and things like that, which when working maybe with a big-bodied, able-bodied athlete, uh, it, it can be easier to make those changes more broadly for the athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you ever think about using any vitamin or mineral supplements on the whole or are you mostly using food as as getting that source of nutrients? To be honest, mostly using food. I do find that some Paralympic athletes or, you know, the wheelchair rugby guys maybe have heard or are used to taking some medications and they perhaps ask a little bit more around would it be beneficial if I took you know xyz but mm-hmm. i think as a whole I, I generally don't have many athletes who are taking a multivitamin i do have some who take a probiotic yep. and that was something that we have done when they travel internationally before but i also have athletes who take that year round and that's sort of mm-hmm. more of a personal preference for them often they've had infections they've used a lot of antibiotics you know, these guys are really trying to um, maximise their health, I guess you could say, and, and mm-hmm. they do everything they can to to try and give themselves a benefit in terms of their health rather than sort of performance, I guess. 
So many of these athletes, due to their spinal cord injury, don't have voluntary bowel or bladder function. Mm -hmm. Do you find that the prescription of, or the use of probiotics influences that bowel regularity in these athletes? Yeah, so I guess when I'm working with you know, these rugby guys, one of the, the things in a nutrition assessment that I do initially is to really have a good understanding of their bowel and bladder function you know, what their routines are, how that's going to affect them practically when you're suggesting things or, or even, you know, when you're travelling with them. In terms of probiotics, I, I do have a couple of athletes who are now not on the team, but they they sort of swore by them. They felt that the probiotics did help in terms of their gastrointestinal comfort and, and they took them, they were the ones who take them, I guess, year-round. I've got other athletes yep. who will take them when they're travelling they don't necessarily see any change or benefit, but um, they certainly don't see any negative um, implications either. Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you feel as though there's a higher rate of poor gastrointestinal function with these athletes or it's similar to you see what you see with other para-athletes and able-bodied athletes? Uh, I think there is probably a slightly higher inc- incidence of the guys saying, you know, that certain foods don't sit well, you know, whether whether it's a, a significant issue or not. I mean, I guess everything's significant, but it's not necessarily that there's more dietary, you know, I don't get any sort of vegetarians or people with, I suppose, specific requests, but I do find a lot of them might say, oh, you know, I feel more bloated if uh, I eat you know, more gluten or, or things like that. So we, we do have, or certainly if, if there's any major fibre shift in their diet, there's definitely um, more yeah. incidence of, of gut discomfort in this group than than compared with, mm-hmm. say, able-bodied athletes. But, you know, overall, if I, if I look at their requests when I'm catering for them, they're a pretty easy bunch to cater for and they tend to make fairly... Mm-hmm good decisions you know within themselves on how to make themselves feel comfortable and often that's more around timing and certainly those who who try and avoid gluten a little bit more on on camps and it's often pastas and things like that we've now changed that to to be a little bit more maybe rice based or potato based um as the carbohydrate option Mm -hmm. awesome and do you feel as though needing to allow time for their bowel routine so you know being predominantly fairly high level spinal cord injuries they have a a routine that they follow and for some that's daily for a lot it's second daily does that impact on the timing of training sessions and when you travel how does that tend to how how does the travel itself tend to impact on that yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So I was lucky enough to travel as the team manager for a number of years with our wheelchair rugby team, and um, which sort of culminated in us going to the World Championships in 2014. Mm-hmm. Certainly, bowel routines from a practical sense have to be considered from a manager's point of view, and, and it was so good to learn those things firsthand on the road with the team. I think, mm-hmm. you know, as dietitians, we need to be aware of our recommendations around how convenient the breakfast is. I think, you know, we can't, for those who are maybe toileting on a certain routine, to then go and suggest they have um, a fairly time-intensive breakfast, 
is, is mm. not very practical. I mean, other than the fact that it's not that practical anyway because it takes them longer to, to prepare food sometimes. I think um, really understanding the timing of that in the mornings and our guys don't tend to train, you know, before work as such. Um, they tend to train at 9 or 10 a.m. So for some of them it means they are getting up quite early but they're used to that and they, they get into that routine. So I guess, um, you know, when you're travelling overseas, certainly that can really upset their bowel habits. You know, some people are very on routine and then they're jet lagged and, you know, they take certain medications at certain times of the day and that can all be a little bit topsy-turvy for a couple of days. So certainly on arrival from Australia, you know, on an international trip, it's a big trip. So on arrival to have a day or two where training schedules are certainly a little bit later in the day and where, where possible. I mean, obviously you get given court time at a certain time, but just the first sort of 24 hours to make sure the guys get into a good routine and, and feel comfortable before they have to hit the court is, is really important. Yeah. Now you said guys, but obviously yes. wheelchair rugby isn't just a male specific sport. Yes. Uh, have, you had much, have you had much experience with female wheelchair rugby players? Uh, well, look, no, I haven't. We have been an all-male team until just a couple of years ago, and now we have one female on the team, mm-hmm. which is is fabulous. And it's been a really good experience actually working with with that female athlete. It helps. She's a very good eater and and takes her nutrition. You know, she's very professional in in terms of her nutritional intake. And I guess the the sort of the transition from male to female hasn't been too much of an adjustment, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly from a nutrient-dense point of view, she's a very good eater, so um, that's helped. And and it's been really nice to sort of go on that nutrition journey with her in terms of more around education and recovery and fueling and that side of things because she already had a very good um, diet to begin with. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so let's move on to maybe the heat side of yeah. things uh, you mentioned earlier. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the things that you've learnt and, and some of the things that you've implemented in relationship to heat and particularly around hydration. Yeah, so early on, um, actually when I was at the AIS with you, Liz, we did some nice little sort of fluid balance um, studies with the team and I, I can't remember the figures off the top of my head but sweat rates were really, really low in that spinal cord injury group. Um, obviously our couple of mm-hmm. 3.5 guys, I guess I'll admit, omit from this part of the conversation their fluid losses were very low in addition to that over time I've done some you know hydration testing in the morning and and often they're not that well hydrated uh, in the morning which is another you know I guess as a dietitian I think well they're not sweating that much how are they not well hydrated if mm. you know I guess if, if they're not sort of having to replace a lot but I guess it comes down to the practicality you know with a lot of these people they don't want to drink a lot before they go to bed because getting out of bed for them is much yeah. more difficult than it is for you or I. Then on top of that, you know, if they've got a game at 10 a.m., they don't want to drink a lot in the morning because once they get into their chairs and they're all strapped in into their game chair, they don't want to have to go to the bathroom and get themselves out or or what what have you to um, to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So often they're intentionally under-drinking at certain times of the day, which is obviously not ideal for performance. Having said that, those that feel the heat a lot, which which is a lot of the guys, once they start training, go to a, a drink as a um, as an option to cool themselves, and perhaps you know have the tendency to over-drink in some some sort of situation. So 
we do a lot of, we've done a lot of education around this, but also we use other measures to try and cool them, which, which many people do obviously now. And, and I think Tokyo was a great showcase of that in terms of, you know, seeing all the different methods that teams were using in this spinal cord injury group. But uh, some of our guys, it's not always practical to get them in and out of ice baths, particularly the low pointers. Yep. We would pre-cool though using um, ice towels and or some slushy if they feel comfortable and, and making sure we have, I mean, in a slushy or a very cold drink, um, there's plenty of electrolytes so that they're not feeling like they're just needing to go to the bathroom straight away. And then yep. during mm-hmm. the game, we use a lot of fans, iced towels, um, making sure their drinks are cold or sometimes they will drink from a slushy. So that will help them feel cool um, and actually, you know, perceptually, but also cool their body temperature at the same time as not, I guess, over drinking. Yeah. And and also, yeah. you know, throughout all of this, you know, GI comfort, I guess, has to be considered. And and I guess another part of that hydration piece is, is travel. We, we get a lot of people avoiding drinking too much on the flight because they don't want to need to go to the bathroom mm. and you know, obviously the risk of of urinary tract infection is then increased and they feel though that they might get a UTI if they use the bathroom on the plane because it's not a very hygienic Mm, space. So it's quite a tricky area and I think individualisation is is the key here. So really understanding them as a person, what their current habits are. You know, there's some guys who tend to get urinary tract infections quite a lot and so with those guys we really Mm -hmm. have to make sure that they are looking after their hydration and they're not getting into these situations where they are um, very, you know, dehydrated. Tablets to put into their water bottles and things like that to help them with that. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, some of them can also use indwelling catheters when they're when they're travelling to avoid that need to have to get to a bathroom and yeah. that enables them to... To be a little bit more flexible with their fluid intake, um, as opposed to using an, you know, an intermittent catheterisation technique. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, yep. you know, a lot of our, our low point players, you know, would have that situation so that they're not needing to get up and go to the bathroom. I mean, they have them, yep. you know, anyway permanently. But yeah, the whole the whole travel thing for these guys is is really a lot more complex um, than it is for you know an able-bodied athlete and we all know how hard it is getting on a flight anyway once I started traveling with these guys I said to myself I'm not going to complain again about being on a plane because it's so much harder for them yeah because they have to get on pretty much first and then the last ones to get off often and so the whole the whole period of time that they've spent on the on the plane itself is is extended and yeah the maneuverability within a, a flight a plane situation is pretty low Absolutely, and and certainly one other area we work on in in travel is is that um, pressure sores and and um, trying to avoid that. I mean, even though it's I guess not a directly a nutrition uh, issue, uh, it is if if they get a pressure sore. But also, you know, for their own sake, we try and reduce sort of any pressure or you know reduce the risk of any pressure sores. The Australian team have done a lot of work with the physios in that space. They did a great project, and they all now carry their own cushions and, and carry, uh, you know, sit on their own cushions on a flight overseas, um, which is great. And, yep. and and one other thing I know we touched on earlier was the fibre part and, and gut comfort and, mm-hmm. and we all know that the flight food is not fabulous at the best of times. So, you know, we do find that when on arrival um, they're not necessarily feeling great in the guts 
I often tell my guys yep. to take a couple of snacks if they can that are sort of a little bit more high fibred and um, and lighter foods. And mm-hmm. we did get a couple of comments after Tokyo um, where we sort of did our own food, you know, whole setup um, in the Tokyo village. A couple yep. of athletes came up to me out of the blue and said it was the first time they've travelled internationally to a big um, meet where they haven't had any issues with their bowels, um, which was a real wow. um, surprise. But I guess when I think about it, it makes sense. You know, we had high fibre Australian breakfast cereals, which is more typical of what they would eat at home. And, you know, we'd sent mm-hmm. some familiar yeah. snacks. And, and that was a really great outcome that I didn't expect from our food provision in Tokyo was actually getting benefit from, you know, even a gut comfort point of view. Um, I hadn't really thought about that, but it was, it was a great comment to hear. Yeah, that's awesome. Fantastic. So can we go back to that early comment that you made about what questions are okay to ask? And that was something that you learnt really early on can you kind of talk us through you know when you first meet an athlete some of the key questions and the the questions that are okay to ask or in fact more so than okay necessary to ask yeah and I think I don't know there's no way about sort of making it any easier It, it is a little bit uncomfortable sometimes in a in a consult to be asking these questions but um, at the same time as you said it's it's just so important and if if we sort of just shuffle around the edges and, and don't get into the nitty-gritty, you're not actually going to be able to provide a meaningful service to the athlete. And in most mm-hmm. cases, the athletes are only so healthy, happy to help and to, to teach. I mean, that's how I've learnt, other than the nutrition specifics, which is what I've learnt from you, Liz, you know, around that, you know, athlete with a disability, just actually having the confidence to talk to them and, and ask questions. So, with a, a rugby guy I, or a girl, you know, when I'm first talking with them, really understanding, you know, when did they have their injury? And, you know, this tells mm-hmm. me where they are, like where they are in their rehab. And, and the reason I say that now is, you know, I'll often talk to, say, Brad, our coach, and he'll say, oh, even for about four or five years after coming out of rehab, I was still learning to do things like, you know, twist the top off a a bottle and and they're the kind of skills that mm-hmm. make a big difference to your everyday life and they are still mm-hmm. learning those yep. you're not learning them but I suppose relearning them um, several years later understanding I guess their lesion level um, their classification mm-hmm. you know and and even delving into well because you're a such and such you know quadriplegic can you actually feel this or, you know, your legs or what kind of movement do you have? Can you transfer yourself? These kind of questions allow you to understand the athlete as a person and, and what their day looks like, you know. Uh, do they have a carer? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they have someone that comes in that could perhaps help with food prep, you know, um, because that's going to yeah. help them and you in terms of your guidance with that athlete. I think another mm-hmm. one that as dietitians, you know, is always a little bit awkward to ask and, you know, is around that bowel and bladder routine, you know, do they get urinary tract infections? That's something that I think coming in as a dietitian, I had very little understanding about uh, in terms of catheters mm-hmm. and things like that. And I yep. still don't have um, an understanding about, you know, all the different ways that I guess athletes might toilet. But if you have a bit of an understanding around that, laxities and things to help with their bowels and and how fibre impacts on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I always check, obviously, their, as you would with any um, athlete, but their medications and supplement use 
you know, they'll often be on a couple of different medications, maybe for spasms or, or what have you. And obviously from a safety point of view in terms of being an elite athlete, if they're new to that sphere, just making sure that they don't need a TUE or anything, but but also just having an understanding of, of what's actually um, going in each day and, and making sure that's safe. I talk a lot about mm-hmm. gut function, um, just really about appetite. Some of our guys don't feel very hungry in the morning, so how do we practically get them to eat something before that first training session? How far before, once they get into the chair, do they do they not really want to eat? You know, do they feel when they've sort of bent over mm-hmm. a little bit, is that going to impact on their comfort? And whether they have sort of, I guess, a, a focus around fibre and, um, you know, whether they're sort of, they've got any beliefs or, or um, things that they avoid or, or tend to eat a lot of. So I guess, yeah, just really understanding the person, their living arrangements is, is another one, you know, who is actually responsible for the food. And this will all help in your practical kind of suggestions to, to these athletes, you know, is chopping a vegetable going to be really tricky? Because if it is, mm. let's look at, I mean, there's so many great food delivery um, and healthy options now or partially prepped, you know, meals that you just have to kind of heat or, or what have you at home. And there's also plenty of things in the supermarket that, you know, the veggies that are already chopped that you just need to microwave and, you know, what's their kitchen set up? What can and can't they do? And, and then I think that's really important to understand when you're giving suggestions you know in a meal plan you need to be a little bit more considered in your approach when you're working with these athletes not just sort of suggesting things that are just going to be way too complicated for them to do and or dangerous as well in the kitchen yeah and also I think not assuming that they can't I've had you know in in wheelchair rugby I've had uh, athletes who do most of the cooking themselves and really enjoy it and they've found ways of working around their abilities through to someone who can't even turn on a microwave so and, and doesn't have that facility. So I think, you know, it's also important never to assume that they can or can't do something. Absolutely. You know, the guys I work with, I learned so much. You know, I said before, I'll never complain after I get on a plane seat again. But every day, they're, they're amazing in everything they do. Like, And so absolutely, Liz, and I should have made that clear that it's just mm. so important to... I guess just understand them as a person and, and exactly what they can and can't do and how you, can I provide that will help, you know, guide you in this nutrition space, you know, other than the education side. Yeah, once you get to the practicality side, just being really open and um, ask you lots of questions as well because I need to understand uh, so that I can better help um, you in the process. And I've been so lucky to have some really experienced athletes to work with that, have taught me so much more than I've ever taught them, you know, in our in our relationship. So it's been it's been really good. Um, so, Siobhan, do you have any specific recommendations for athletes, whether they're current wheelchair rugby athletes or potentially new para athletes? Any specific recommendations that you have for them? Um, yeah, I guess a, a common issue, and it came up at the start, is around that energy expenditure and and just I guess as you you you're getting into the sport and, um, you know, perhaps trying to, to reach, I don't know, a certain body composition. Well, A is, is getting some guidance with that, but B is just, you know, being patient. I think things don't happen overnight, uh, in any, in any athlete, mm-hmm. but, but with, um, a spinal cord injury athlete, it is harder sometimes to, to change.
their body composition because you're working with, you know, a smaller muscle mass, I guess, to yep. start with. So I have seen commonly, you know, in people trying to change their body composition that they're chronically under-eating and they, they get themselves into a, a situation where they're a little bit deficient in terms of their energy intake and, and that can, you know, lead to a lot of issues. So I think mm. trying to get guidance with your energy intake and just being patient around that. I think, yep. you know, another really important part for, for, um, spinal cord injury athletes is, is really to, you know, you guys know the most about yourselves and what, what suits and, you know, is comfortable with you. And so while you're trying to achieve whatever it is in, in your sport is really ensuring that the person you're working with understands that and, you know, can provide mm-hmm. practical guidance around that. And, you know, that whole nutrition, the nutrition dense foods, you know, like nutritionally dense foods are just so important. I can't sort of overemphasize that enough in terms of energy expenditure and energy intake, therefore, is going to be lower. And so, you know, just making that effort to be sort of organized and making sure we're meeting our nutrition targets is is really crucial for both health and performance. Yes. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And what about to practitioners, whether they're sports dietitians or physios or physiologists or psychologists, any any specific advice that you have for them when working with wheelchair rugby? Uh, I guess I, I touched on it before, but, you know, really being open. I think no two individuals are ever going to be the same. And, yep. you know, we can learn so much from the athletes. So really having open ears and and working with them to understand how we're going to achieve whatever it is we're trying to achieve in in whatever area we work in. I think, mm-hmm. you know, even though I've worked with wheelchair rugby for a long time, I still feel like there's so much that I don't know. And, you know, each yeah. athlete is just so different. So just being really great listeners and, and working as a team with the athlete and your other practitioners to try and get the best outcomes. Perfect. Cool. Well, Vaughnie, it's been... Great talking to you. You've got some fantastic insight and really great messages and I think there's some real gems there. To finish off with, though, we want to talk a little bit more about you. So Mm. what's your favourite food? Oh, my favourite food. Uh, As a meal, I'd say my mum's roast chicken (laughs) or as a treat or something that I really love having, it would be a really good ice cream. Uh, Any particular flavour? Oh, Maybe something including Nutella, if it's like a good Italian gelateria. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some of the some of the things that we're looking forward to getting back to uh, the travel to Italy. Absolutely, it's a good gelateria. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Siobhan, thank you so much for your time, your insight, and everything that you do for Team Australia. You you do a fantastic job and I certainly know Tokyo was a massive massive effort so I know all the athletes really appreciated that but yeah uh, hopefully we can have you back at another time and maybe talk about a different sport but thank you so much for joining us. Not at all Liz thanks for inviting me on it feels funny you know talking about this when you're the person who sort of taught me everything I I know in the Paris space so um, yeah thanks for thanks for doing this podcast it's great for everyone to have you know, a place to go to find some really great information. So thanks, Liz. No problem. And all I did, Vaughnie, for you was open a door. (laughs) You walked through it and embraced it. So, you know, well done to you. Thanks, Liz. Siobhan has given us a really nice insight into 
some of the key questions or issues that come up with the high level spinal cord injuries within the team of wheelchair rugby and really I think her openness to communicate well with the athletes and really create a strong relationship with the athletes so that she can really apply her knowledge and her skills to their needs is super important. Thank you for bearing with us with a couple of technical issues that we've had with this podcast and also the delay in loading it up. We're back on track, I hope, uh, moving forward. Thank you for joining us and if you have any questions, please feel free to leave them on the website and if you have any recommendations on people you'd like to hear from, let me know. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to... Peter Peeling who is an expert in the topic of iron and we're looking at some specific questions around para-athletes.